my wings are made of tungsten, my flesh of glass and steel. I am the joy of terror for the power that I wield. Once upon a lifetime I died a pioneer. Now I sing within a spaceship's heart. Does anybody hear? They call themselves angels. The dregs of a thousand hells raised up and given shining armor, bright swords, and masks of fair and elegant form. Yet I wonder, have they worn those masks so long that they forget what it is that waits beneath, that monstrous aspect that yet yearns to be set free? Attributed to Marlek Brandt, a remembrancer attached to the Ninth Legion, 811 M30 to 848 M30. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Lost Transmissions, a Battlefleet Gothic podcast set in the Age of Darkness. I'm here with our Legion Commander, Austin, and uh, today we actually have another twofer episode for you. We're going to be talking about the Blood Angels and their stoic cousins, the Iron Hands. Yep, although really second cousins, right? Like, Iron Hands and Blood Angels. If you could pick two ostensibly loyalist legions that were less alike, you'd be kind of hard-pressed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, They're not exactly well-known for cooperating with one another. Not for lack of trying, or rather, maybe just for lack of evidence. (laughs) Not not that they actively hate each other, but... Yeah, they're just not... They were just never around each never other. Never really that hung much. out together, which is kind of interesting because the legions that hate each other tend to be pretty similar, right? Like yeah, Iron Warriors, Imperial Fists, the same thing, essentially the same thing. Essentially, just one is yellow and therefore uglier. Harsh words, but true, true words. Yeah. Yeah. Suck it, Jared. <clears throat> ah. <laughs> Lord. All right. Yeah. Uh. So yeah, these were two interesting ones to do up special rules for in that the Iron Hands was actually really easy. Uh, It sort of came to me in a vision, and we never messed with it again. Whereas the Blood Angels, oh lord, was that complicated. Yeah. um, The Blood Angels, they were actually one of the last legions that we ended up getting around to doing rules for because so many other legions we kind of came to us they were immediately in our minds of what they should be when mm-hmm. it came to writing rules for them that by the time we had gone through all those legions and then gone through all the legions that required a little bit more work we had the blood angels and we we're like well what can we do for the blood angels that we haven't already done for any other legion yeah and it was also interesting because the blood angels are actually the only legion that when we started playtesting, we completely changed their Legion trait, their Legion ability. Uh, everybody else, we either just sort of kept it as we wrote it, thought it was good, or did just very, very minor tweaks with it. Uh, the Blood Angels, we sort of looked at it and went, all right, well, time to rewrite this from the ground up. Mm. Uh, <laughs> but hopefully we've settled on something that all you Blood Angels fans out there uh, enjoy and can get some good work out of. Yeah. Well... The rest of us don't have to suffer too much. Yeah. So, Ninth Legion, Blood Angels, 
Despite their noble personage, the Blood Angels are utterly destructive on the warpath, slamming into their foe with a fury matched by few of the Emperor's armies. Their Gloriana is the Red Tear. The Blood Angels' legion rule is called Red Fury. In Carmine, angels fall upon the foe with shot and shell and blade, sparing none their wrath. To be in the guns of the Blood Angels' fleet is to court instant death. Astarte ships that are in a squadron gain a left shift on the gunnery table when firing weapons batteries, and may re-roll to hit rolls of one when firing lances. Now, off the bat, that doesn't seem all that fancy. It's, it's a relatively simple rule. Uh, but it gives the Blood Angels a lot of... Uh, a lot of firepower. It makes, first of all, battery weapons are much, much more effective mm-hmm. with Blood Angels. Um, getting an automatic left shift on the gunnery table uh, negates two of the most common sources of right shifts, which is blast markers and distance. Yeah, well, I mean, you're pretty much, if you're not the first person to shoot at them, a ship's going to have a blast marker in contact. Mm-hmm. And that does make it hard for fleets, especially fleets with a lot of weapons batteries, because that first salvo goes in, and it's sexy, and it drops the shields, and then the second one only gets, like, three dice, because there's splash markers, and it just doesn't, you know, get that oomph for the killing blow that you really want. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blood Angels care less about that than most people. Yep. Uh, and don't discount re-rolling hits of one when firing lances. Like, oh yeah, that's a one in six chance, what are the odds? One in six. Yeah, the odds are one in six, and uh, that's that's real good. Yeah, you know, if you have the if you have the quintessential gothic lunar combo, and you throw six lances at somebody, statistically one of them is going to be a one. Yep, and then that one turns into a fifty percent chance of being a hit. And I can't tell you how many times I fired a volley of lances and come up like one hit short of you know causing that crippling hit or you know, killing the enemy ship. Yep. So not well, as instantly, ah, that's real good, as the first half of their rule, but don't discount it. Mm-hmm. You're, um, when you're locked on, which was the, originally when we wrote Blood Angels, it was, they just automatically pass lock-on orders, uh, which we then changed to what we have now. But... When you're locked on, it doesn't really help a lot with your lances now, because you're going to reroll ones anyway. But where it does help is those batteries, because on average, by getting a good shift on the gunnery table, you're probably uh, getting two or three extra dice to throw at a target um, at the most. You know, sometimes it's really only one extra die, but when you're locked on, that one extra die counts a lot. Mm-hmm. Yep, and then if you are somehow managing to just mass 20 shots at once, you know, you're looking at a difference of four dice at a time when it comes to getting that left shift. Yeah, and like I, like Steven said, initially it was just a pure automatic lock-on, and when I wrote that rule, I thought it was pretty flavorful, because Blood Angels, as you probably know, uh have a penchant for going a little crazy and suddenly not caring about anything else around them. And for inexperienced BFG players, lock-on sounds really good, right? You're getting those re-rolls. 
but you can't turn, and inevitably that's going to be a problem. Um, the problem we had with free lock-ons for Blood Angels is that it was the only rule that really scaled uh, real, real hard to the talent of the person playing the fleet. Because uh, a lot of these, it doesn't matter if you're a brand new BFG player or an experienced BFG player, you're going to use the tricks and it's all going to kind of be there, right? It's going to be helpful. It'll occasionally steer you wrong. Um, but generally it's going to be a good thing. But if you lock on for free, inexperienced BFG players are just going to lock on all the time and be annihilated because that's not how you win games with Battlefleet Gothic. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, if you're an experienced BFG player and good at it, it was way too good. It was yeah. way too good. <laughs> um, so we felt that this uh, was still kind of in the keeping of, you know, Blood Angels are really aggressive. They want to fight fight people and be angry about it um, while not being quite so reliant on how good the Admiral is because, Hey, technically we're all a hundred year old space Marines. That doesn't sound right. At least, uh, at least 50 year old space. Yeah. Marines. Right. Like it, that's probably roughly the life expectancy of a space Marine during the crusade. Right. It, it's one of the funny things. It's like all these crusade Marines that everybody kind of, looks back on from the 41st millennium as being like the epitome of space Marines. Like you can't, you don't even get into a tactical squad until you're like 200 nowadays. And these guys, mm -hmm. 200 was like the oldest possible space Marine wild. Yeah. Anyway, we're getting a little off course here. Um, but yeah, blood angels, they're exciting. And, uh, they're Gloriana. The red tier is like all Gloriana's. Real, real rude. Big and scary. The red tier is based off a of Desolator. It's 350 points, which is, all things considered, quite cheap. Yeah, as far steel. As Glorianas go. Uh, there are baseline battleships that are more expensive than that. But the red tier, uh, Battleship 12, you know it, you love it. Desolator profile, 25 centimeters, 45 degree turn. Four shields, five up armor, four turrets. Uh, two firepower, four 60-centimeter range lance batteries on the port and starboard sides. A dorsal bombardment cannon at firepower 10, 60 centimeters. And nine prow torpedoes in the front. The red tier has two special abilities. One is that it does not suffer a negative shift for firing through blast markers, which is good for that bombardment cannon, uh, because chances are it's going to be firing through blast markers come later in the game. Yep, and also is just beautiful combined with the Blood Angels' basic rule, because now you're getting that left shift, and instead of sort of canceling out blast markers, it's just a bonus. Well, that's actually the interesting part about the red tier, is that it's the only Gloriana that does not benefit from its Legion trait. Does it Because not? it's a battleship. And you can squadron other battleships. Oh, that's true. Battleship. It's not a squadron. It's not a but squadron. That's expensive. And uh, good luck having two battleships on the table at once. Yeah, look at me fucking it up. I'll tell Jesse to edit it out later. It'll be fine. But that's okay. Because the red <laughs> tier has a neat little rule on its own. Since it's flying around solitary. Uh, 
If critical damage is rolled against the red tier, the controlling player may roll 2d6 and select which result is to be applied. This includes damage from hit-and-run attacks as well. So when, you know, somebody jumps on you with hit-and-runs and, and uh, starts disabling all your weapon systems, you don't have a... Well, you sort of do if you use narrative Coloriana's, but you don't... You don't have a way to just completely negate it, but you do have a way of making sure that the damage they inflict on you is not going to cripple your ability to fight back. Hmm. Uh, same thing goes for um, critical hits caused by weapons fire, and is a really good way to avoid having somebody uh, give you a bulkhead collapse, a shields collapse... Uh, a yeah, whole breach. Any, any of those kind of breaking critical mm-hmm. hits. It's a that nice you little bit of insurance yeah. against uh, against some of the, the more awful crits. But on that note, may as well talk about another one of the Gloriana rules. Uh, this is if you're using narrative Glorianas. It's called Unstoppable. Dense shielding and a world's worth of ablative armor make even damaging a Gloriana a daunting task, to say nothing of destroying it. In addition to a vast army of tech priests and mechanical redundancies, a Gloriana is a host to the finest of their number. So if destroyed, a Gloriana may reroll the result of 11 or 12 on the catastrophic damage table, although the second roll does stand. This means that it's like, less likely to just explode and destroy your entire fleet. Um, If an 11 or 12 is rolled, however, a Gloriana automatically explodes or implodes the maximum distance. And even if crippled, a Gloriana does not reduce its weapon firepower values. If a Gloriana suffers a critical damage, roll a d6. On a 3-up, the critical damage is ignored. A Gloriana may repair any damage that would be otherwise unrepairable, and they repair critical hits on a 4-up instead of the usual 6 if a Gloriana suffers the disabling of a weapon, reduce the weapon's firepower by v- firepower value by half until it is repaired, instead of just completely being uh, negated. A second critical hit to the same position will fully disable the weapon. So right there, Glorianas, uh, and the red tier in particular, are hard to hurt. They've already got six up armor across the board. But now, even giving them, even inflicting critical hits on them, requires them failing a Space Marine's armor save. Yeah, it's just not going to happen near as much as you would like. And remembering yeah. when most of your critical hits are only inflicted on sixes to begin with, yep, the the odds are real bad. Yep. Even when they have you know 12, 24 hit points to try and chew through. Yep. And so you think, well, that's okay. I'll just jump on the Gloriana with uh, with assault boats. I'll do so many hit-and-run attacks that he can't possibly save all of them. Well... You'd be wrong there. Yep. Labyrinthine vastness. So huge are Glorianas that boarding actions against them must be carefully planned and must always be conducted by an excessively huge force of soldiers. It requires two assault boats, or assault boats equivalents, to conduct a hit-and-run attack on a Gloriana. Yeah, and we're being generous there, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Because when the Space Wolves tried it, 
against the uh, Sons of Horus, they dumped a Primarch and you could probably say at least a great company on the flagship and didn't make it work. Yep. <laughs> like, Spoiler they, alert, Horus still made it to Terra. Yeah, like... <coughs> so, you know, saying, oh yeah, those two Kaistas, like 60 Marines can totally do a critical hit on a Gloriana, we're giving you one. Yep. <laughs> uh, which, again, they then have a three-up save against. And yeah, so we're not giving you much of one, but it's something. <laughs> yep. And if you're uh, trying to board or commence a hit-and-run attack against the narrative red tier, you have to make it through eight turrets. Good luck. Yep. Hopefully it fired at the uh, torpedoes first, right? <laughs> yeah. The red tier may not be uh, may not be the most impressive Gloriana, but it's still a Gloriana. And it's still real mean. Yeah, it's it's certainly one of the ones that you can feel less bad about bringing uh, just the regular version, not the the movie Marine Gloriana, because that's just ridiculous. Uh, the lances go from 4 to 12, 30 centimeter bombardment cannon, 12 torpedoes. You'll have a bad time. Mm, um, she's gonna get you. But the basic one, like, it's nasty, but it's not inconceivably dangerous. Yeah, you'll be all right. Yeah. You'll be all right, maybe. <laughs> Possibly. Um, what kind of things can you put in, say, a thousand points of Blood Angels? Uh, this is actually a fleet that we discussed a few episodes ago in our Back to Basics episode. Um, it is a Gothic cruiser and a Luna cruiser. It is a Devastation cruiser with an Astartes crew. Five Firestorm Escorts, and an Avenger Grand Cruiser with a Stardace crew. Now, that's a pretty decent mix of weapons. Um, but at a thousand points, you can kind of move around where you've got that Astardace crew on the Devastation. Mm -hmm. Because if you put it in either the Gothic or the Lunar, then you are... Uh, you're getting to make use of the Legion trait. Or, if you pair up that Gothic or that Lunar with the Avenger, since they're both cruiser types, they can go in one squadron. And you've uh, you've got a pretty good block of firepower there. Yep. It's a little bit of an awkward pairing, but it'll get the job done. However, after thinking about this, because we were thinking about you know what ships we could talk about with Blood Angels and Iron Wars and all that, and I think my favorite... Uh, because of their legion trait, is escorts. Yeah. Uh, Five points for an Astartes crew for the whole squadron. Yeah, so, you know, if we go with... Uh, let's take let's take one of the, the crowd favorites, uh, the Nova-class frigate. The damn things are incredibly fast. They're 35 centimeters. You, you don't go faster in Battlefleet Gothic in the Horus Heresy. And even in regular Battlefleet Gothic, uh, there's not much that'll outrun you. And uh, when I take these, because they're so fast, they're one of the escorts that I don't tend to pair up with other things, just because I don't want to slow the squadron down. And I take five of them in a squadron, uh, which means that altogether, they have ten weapons batteries and five lances. Uh, ten weapons battery 
is good, not overwhelmingly great, but it's good. Uh, and of course, five lances will make anybody have a bad day. And then you throw on the Blood Angel special rule, right? So usually, you know, one in six chance, you roll five dice. One of those lance hits is probably going to be a one. So you get to re-roll that. That's fun. And uh, when you get a left shift on the gunnery table from an escort squadron, which is so fast it's going to be within 15 centimeters of its target probably, and get another left shift, it becomes even nastier than they already are. Um, but the same could be said for, say, the Firestorm, uh, which is the yeah, same basic idea. The same thing with the Firestorm. Yeah, the same basic idea. They're just not as fast. Um, everything else about them is the same, though. Or uh, the Iconoclast is another one. It's all weapons battery. Really, any any of the escorts that are running around in the book that aren't torpedo boats, like that aren't destroyers, uh, are a great pick for Blood Angels just because they just take the weapons battery and lance fire and cranks it up to 11. And we like it. It gives you the added benefit, too, of um, having fantastic board control if you... Mm-hmm max up on uh, on escort squadrons. They don't even have to be huge escort squadrons, you know? Just uh, Yeah, especially for Blood Angels. Have to, the fact that someone's going to have to put a 10 weapons firepower uh, salvo into killing three or four escorts when there's another group of three or four escorts right behind it. Yeah, and just, normally the downside of that is you're constantly firing through blast markers and you don't have a bunch of shots coming back because you only have a few escorts in each group. But if you're re-rolling ones with your lances and getting left shift on your gunnery table, less important. Mm-hmm. Yep. The Blood Angels in Book 8 is really the only time that we get any sort of uh, information on how they fight in the Void, but they're said to be very precise until they close the distance and then they become absolute savages. Which is pretty pretty accurate. To mm-hmm. flying around with a bunch of escorts. Yeah. It's a fun time. Uh, well, for you, certainly. Yeah, <laughs> for the Blood Angels player. For the opponent, maybe less of a fun time. Uh, but hey, you'll be beating up on Pretty Boy Blood Angels, and who doesn't like doing that? It's true. It's true. Uh, we all remember what happened when uh, when Twilight came out. We remember the jokes. As a Space Wolf player, I definitely remember the jokes. <laughs> Lord, moving on. Um, so do you have anything else to say about the Blood Angels? Nope. In fact, we are going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor before we get into Legion number two, the Iron Hands. Yep. Corpse Starch. Are you hungry? Eat a dead person. Corpse Starch. Would you like a shout-out on our podcast? Maybe discounts on our Teespring store? Maybe you'd like to vote for upcoming Heresy Grad School topics? Hang out in a private Discord server? Or maybe even just getting a fun podcast sticker? If you're interested in any of that, consider becoming a patron. Patreon funds help for server costs and allows us to make cool content for you to enjoy. Patronage also helps us pay for projects such as our Nova Open Charitable Foundation Army, The Honored. An Ultramarine Zone Metallus Force will be up for charity raffle coming this year. If you're interested in getting in on the action, consider becoming a patron today at patreon.com forward slash rr30k podcast. Thank you. 
We'd like to thank all of our patrons in the month of July, starting with our Praetor tier, Alex Self, Nicholas Quanga, Mr. Baldwick, Jacob Dillon, Matthew Boyce, Josh Phillips, Gardner.Tree of Woe, Joe from Music City Heresy, and Chris Mack. On to our Centurion tier, Queen Corswain, M. Tanzer, Minis by Applesauce, Scott LeMay, Andrew N., Black Label Painting, Angry Boy, John Christensen, and Mark Henry. And finally, our Sergeant tier, Nicholas Gillen, Aaron Maynard, Garrett Lowe, Travis Smith, Duncan, and Emily O'Hare. Thank you all for your patronage. Welcome back. It's time to move on from the noble personage of the Blood Angels. Um, we are moving on to the Iron Tenth, the Iron Hands, uh, our good buddy Will's Legion of Choice, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A veritable wedge driving into the enemy. The fleets of the Tenth Legion are as unbroken as the Marines that sail them. Their Gloriana is the Fist of Iron. Their special rule is called Unbroken Iron. The Iron Hands do not falter easily. That which is broken or faulty is quickly replaced, and their ships are constantly being tended to, even in the heat of battle. Against the first round of fire, after going under Brace for Impact special orders, ships with a Stardace crew may re-roll failed Brace for Impact saves. Additionally, the flagship may always roll one extra die when repairing critical damage. Yikes. Yeah, and this is actually one of those, like I mentioned earlier, where Blood Angels were incredibly annoying to try and find a special rule for. Uh, This was written the moment I saw the words Iron Hands and uh, did not change. Just did not change. Uh, Because I think it, it really does an excellent job of getting that sort of iron tenth feel to it. Mm-hmm. They don't, they're not super fancy with maneuvering. Uh, they're not all that better at killing the other guy, but God, are you going to have a hard time killing them? Yeah. And it also speaks to their, uh, love of, you know, machines and technology, right? Mm-hmm. They're re-rolling those brace for impact saves because they've, you know, whereas some other squad sergeant would be drilling his men in the combat, you know, domes, Iron Hand Sergeant has his squad like tinkering with the electrical conduits in one of the plasma cannons on the friggin' ship. Uh, yeah, so when you hit it, it just keeps a, going. Yeah, if you've ever read Angel Exterminatus, there's a um, a cell of Iron Hand's shattered legionaries. Uh, that the book follows. And in it, their tech marine, their forge lord, is constantly tinkering with this big, like, I think it's a pla- some sort of plasma battery on their ship, the Sisypheum. And uh, even, other pe- even other legionaries are like, what is that guy doing? <laughs> like, do, do you need to do that? And turns out, yes. Yes, they did. Yes, indeed, they did. Mm-hmm. So what do we mean when we say against the first round of fire after going under brace for impact? So this is to kind of balance out what could be just crazy rule, right? So you brace for impact. Generally speaking, you know, the other guy says, hey, I'm going to fire at you with whatever weapons batteries or with this ship. And you say to yourself, well, that's going to suck. And you brace for impact. But sometimes you see that shot coming in and go, yeah, that's going to suck, but I'm really afraid of when that ship fires at me, so I'm going to brace for impact now 
because if I fail it, I'll be able to try again when the real hurt comes down. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I didn't feel that that was very iron handsy. Like they'll hunker down, but when they have to, like they're not cowards. Indeed. Uh, So what this, what this does is when you decide to brace for impact, Against that shot, against that ship that you know said, "Hey, all right, now I'm going to roll for brace for impact." That time, you get to re-roll your failed brace for impact saves. So when that second ship fires at you, you're just brace for impact, and it's like normal, and you know that's still good, but it's not uh, the effective immunity that the Iron Hands are getting that first round of shooting because uh, re-rollable four ups just. It's real good, right? Like 75% of the damage you're taking. You're not taking. It's fantastic. Uh, so I wanted you to have to think a little bit. Because, like I said, in that first scenario where, you know, the ship with five weapons batteries is shooting at you to try and drop your shield so the ship with 30 weapons batteries can come in. In the normal course of events, you'd brace at that first one just so you would know you'd be braced. You know, so you're not accidentally failing the one leadership check when the hell comes down. Uh, with the Iron Hands, however, you got to take another thought at that. Because, like, all right, I could get that you know second chance to brace for impact against the real problem. But do I want to when I could just kind of risk it a little bit and then suddenly I'm getting to re-roll my Brace for Impact saves, and it's not going to hurt really at all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in uh, for those of you who are used to playing Heresy or Titanicus, uh, you know, you're kind of used to putting massed firepower into a target and getting massed hits of damage in return. Battlefleet Gothic doesn't quite work that way, mathematically speaking, um, because math is fake and really only works the way it wants to when it wants to. You can pour 20 bolter shots into a squad, you know, an enemy squad, and you might expect 10 wounds. You can pour 20 weapons battery shots into another cruiser, and you'll be lucky if you get three hits. Yeah. Um, I, I don't understand why it works that way, but it does. Yeah, that gunnery so table said, is a fickle mistress. Yeah. That being said, when you are braced, um, it's already hard enough to hurt an enemy cruiser. When you're braced, it's a four up. You're only... You know, you, you don't have to roll against that many hits um, to stay healthy. And the Iron Hands re-rolling the first round of it just make It takes your odds of actually hurting them from slim to none. Yeah, although there is the chance that you could catch them kind of with their pants down, right? So, like, you know, like, like I said in my previous one, hey, I'm going to roll five dice at you. And you're an Iron Hand ship, and you still got your two shields, and you go, yeah, I normally would, but I'm more worried about that guy over there that's going to probably dump 15 dice at me. Uh, meanwhile, because math and statistics are both made up, <laughs> you can roll five hits on those five dice, and suddenly you've done three damage 
where in the normal course of events, if the guy had braced, you'd only do like maybe one. So, you know, happy days sometimes. Yeah, and there's always the there's always the hope that they could fail the brace for impact order. Yeah, yeah. It it is no joke what I'm saying. A lot of the time, experienced Battlefleet Gothic players will brace against something they really don't need to just so they absolutely know that they're going to be okay when that next volley of hate comes in. Uh, which is another reason I really like this, the, the unbroken iron rule for iron hands, because it's a very simple thing, right? Hey, when you go on brace for impact, you get rerolls for your brace for impact saves. That's real simple. But once you start kind of thinking about what actually that entails... You know, you got a lot of interesting decisions to make, which always improves a war game, I think. The more interesting decisions you have to make. Yep, and there's a tiny little caveat at the end of Unbroken Iron as well, that your flagship gets an extra die when repairing critical damage, which you don't often suffer a lot of critical damage effects at the same time, um, unless you've been on the receiving end of a massed hit-and-run attack. Yeah, or a bunch of bombardment cannon or something. Mm-hmm. So, like, at any given time, you might have a, a weapons battery on some location disabled, or your prow weapons disabled, or your engine's a little hurt. Uh, and you're like, all right, here we go, rolling eight dice to repair. Oh, I didn't get any sixes. Well, you can always fish with that one extra die on your flagship. Yeah. Sometimes it's all you need. Well, and a lot of the time, you know, if you've got a critical hit, you've already taken damage, and mm-hmm. you only roll dice for however many hull points you have left. So it gets exponentially better, uh, really, the higher your chances of having suffered a critical hit are. Because there's sometimes when, you know, your ship's been beat to crap, and the enemy's finally done that one critical hit, and you have two hull points left, and it looks like you can sail clean away, but you're on fire. Oops. And you have two dice, and you need one of them to be a six in the next two turns, or else you're going to be dead. Well, you know, iron hands, you got that third die. Uh, And sometimes that can make all the difference. Which brings us to uh, the next fun part. They're Gloriana. The Fist of Iron. A 490-point battleship. It's the first battleship, or the first Gloriana, I should say, that is uh, patterned off of a Retribution-class battleship which everybody knows as the quintessential big, huge, eagle-proud imperial battleship. Mm-hmm. It's Aesthetically, at least, it's my favorite battleship. It's not my favorite battleship on the table, but it looks real cool. It certainly gives off that air of menace that you want from your mile-long battleship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not very fast. It's uh, 20 centimeters of speed, 45-degree turn, a four shields, The Fist of Iron has six-up armor, not just on the prow, and it has four turrets. Uh, The Retribution, and therefore the Fist of Iron, is your battery boat. It packs Firepower 18 weapons batteries at 45-centimeter range on both its port and starboard locations. It has three 60-centimeter lances on the dorsal spine, and it can fire nine torpedoes. Naturally, uh, in a narrative context, that's 36 weapons batteries, 9 lance batteries, and 12 torpedoes. Uh, 
Um, but like the rest of the Iron Hands, the Fist of Iron is incredibly difficult to damage. The Fist of Iron gains a plus one bonus to all Brace for Impact saves, which increases the save necessary to a three up, which it can then reroll in the first round of shooting. And it gains a six up save when it's not under the Brace for Impact special order. So, remember Necrons? You ever played Necrons with their constant save? Yeah, the Fist of Iron, welcome back. Oh, Steven, it sounds like you got a little PTSD, bud. You just play some uh, Necrons <laughs> recently? How'd that work out for you? No, there's no such thing as Necrons. They're just a myth <laughs> used to scare children. Yeah, Steven had, uh, in a fit of gallantry, printed his girlfriend off some Battlefleet Gothic Necrons, or acquired some Battlefleet Gothic Necrons. Yes, acquired. I would yes. never print them. They were acquired, um, and he finally after years of playing Battlefleet Gothic, uh, got the experience the rest of us got in, like, 2003 when they came on and were absolutely horrifying. It was funny. <laughs> it was rough. It was real rough. Um, so the Fist of Iron has a 6-up save. Now, normally, I always say that a 6-up save is not a save. It's a formality. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes, when somebody throws weapons at you and they only get one or two hits you know it's the thing that you need to just make sure you don't take any damage at all yeah i gotta say uh dave and i played a game of aeronautica imperialis social distance uh, and one of the things you can get for your fighters is essentially a six up save against all damage which i did not take because as you said it's a formality uh, and aeronautica much like battlefield gothic you do damage to each other kind of one and two points at a time and I think in a game where I dealt out like 14 points of damage total, he saved six. Is that what is that what y'all are hollering about when you say armored cockpit? Yeah, yeah, it's armored cockpit, and it shouldn't be as good as it is, uh, and it isn't as good as I think it is. But it's damned expensive. if Dave can't roll a six up uh, when he only has to roll when he can only roll it's one die. <laughs> Uh, The Fist of Iron also, in the end phase, whenever it comes to repairing critical hits, um, can repair critical damage on a 5-up, and it may attempt to repair critical damage that is otherwise unrepairable or disallowed, such as Bridge Smash and Shield Collapse. Which is stupid good, Uh, especially Shield Collapse, like on a battleship. That just makes it so incredibly tanky. And I know that there's some people that are like 490 points and like only 18 weapons battery and three lances out of side. Like you can get 18 weapons battery out of side uh, with some of the chaos cruisers. Uh, Yeah, but that's not the point of Fist of Iron. You're never going to kill Fist of Iron. (laughs) (laughs) uh, And then what happens? So it gets a brace, right? You need six ups to do any damage to it with weapons batteries on top of the brace. It gets a three up save to that brace. It re-rolls that brace. And then while it's braced, it's still throwing out nine weapons battery and two lances at a side. Uh, And that's just real rude. In addition to, you know, being able to fix a lot of its problems and all the other fun Gloriana rules that it uh, has going on. 
So while it's not the deadliest of our Glorianas, it's, I think, pretty inarguably the most survivable. Yeah, that's pretty hard to kill. Yeah, which is great if you're using it, um, because again, it's sort of a friendly Gloriana, I guess you could say. Like, it's not, on paper, it doesn't seem quite as nasty as it could be, um, but you're also not giving up all of those fun, extra, I killed a Gloriana victory points to your enemy, uh, because he's just not going to kill your Gloriana. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, there is one more thing about it, and this actually goes uh, for the red tier as well, is that narratively, both of these ships get pretty significantly beat to crap. Uh, the Fist of Iron was crippled by uh, the Third Legion's Pride of the Emperor before the heresy even really got started. Didn't even make it to Isfahan, so it was so beat to crap. Uh, so we recommend that if you're using it uh, in narrative campaigns uh, or in missions set in the early heresy, uh, we recommend removing D6 hull points or 2D6 if you're using the narrative rules uh, to represent the beating it took there. And for the red tier, uh, we suggest that it starts campaigns or narrative games set after Sigma's Prime crippled uh, for much the same reason, because it had a bad time on Sigma's Prime. Yep. And I do mean on Cygnus Prime. <laughs> Literally <laughs> touching the planet. Yeah, you know life's not good when that goes down. Uh-huh. Um, which actually reminds me, in our last episode talking about Night Lords, we said that the same rule should be applied to the Nightfall if you are playing it set after the Thromus Crusade, because the Nightfall was supposed to have been destroyed. Well, uh... Last night, I was reading through Lost and the Damned, one of the new Solar War books, and the Nightfall is there. Hail and hearty. Oh, no. Uh, so disregard that rule, uh, well, constant listeners. Not necessarily. Because um, there's... Yeah, not necessarily... Ignore it after the Thromus Crusade, because like you said, it was assumed destroyed. Um, so we can assume it took a beating. Yeah, it could have very well been reduced to like a drifting hulk. But because these ships are such touchstones for their legions, if they're not, you know, detonating in a nuclear fireball, uh, or probably several nuclear fireballs, because <laughs> I don't think one would really bother a Gloriana... Uh, but, you know, no warp drive implosion. Somebody's going to drag it out, uh, take an entire planet's worth of resources and a billion serfs and say, fix it. Yeah, it's true. Um, so you don't necessarily have to uh, adhere to that rule verbatim. But knowing that the Nightfall does appear again in the Solar War, um, you can modify that slightly. Yeah. Uh, have the Nightfall. Maybe uh, would actually be kind of cool if you played a mission... Involving a crippled nightfall, where you know the objective is to get it off the table or to to find it somewhere in system and uh, repair it. You know that would actually be an interesting one for uh, one of our scenarios. Yeah. Yep. We have a scenario in the red book called um, "Hunt I'm for the sure. Hammer of Io." Io. That's how you pronounce it. Yep. Hunt for the Hammer of Io, and it is essentially the 
that scenario. Uh, there's a battleship, the Hammer of Io, on the field, and you're trying to reclaim it for the glory and the guns. Uh, it is on page 74 mm-hmm. of the Red Book. Yeah, and it's a fun little mission, because you're not... There's a chance that both of you could lose. <laughs> well, technically it's a draw, but... Um, I don't know. I, I just always love the BFG missions that aren't necessarily about killing the enemy. Uh, and all the victory conditions in this in this scenario have absolutely nothing to do with destroying the enemy. It is purely how about... We, uh, how long have we been recording? Uh, 45 minutes. Uh, yeah, we got time. We, we may as well talk about it. Scenario yeah. number one. We'll talk about it. Hunt for the Hammer of Io. Uh... As the heresy went on, ships were being destroyed faster than shipyards could build them. The demand for ships often led to patrols being sent out to battlefields of the Great Crusade to repair hulks previously considered not worth the effort of recovering. Occasionally, opposing salvage fleets would meet, and old battlefields would reignite with the fires of heresy. Most often, these salvage missions would center around the recovery of capital ships from expeditionary fleets that went missing over the course of the Great Crusade. Famously, the hulk of the vanquished 2188th Expeditionary Fleet's flagship, Hammer of Io, became a fulcrum for several engagements as both loyalists and traders attempted to recover it. Uh, Despite the fact that this scenario centers around a battleship, uh, this is a raid. Both players should agree on the fleet size between 500 and 750 points. Each fleet has a free heavy transport acting as the repair tender. the battle zone, this battle may take place in any zone, but most commonly in the outer reaches and in deep space. Generate terrain in a way that is agreeable to both players. Uh, setup, players will roll off with the highest rolling player choosing who deploys first. Players should deploy their entire fleets within their marked zones, which actually, if you have a blue book on hand and you see the cruiser clash uh, scenario, which is on page... Doop, 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 doop. Uh, 68, it is almost verbatim, the uh, setup for Cruiser Clash. So you have two, essentially, you're deploying on long edges with 60 centimeters between each deployment zone uh, with a 90 centimeter wide table. Uh, First players will roll off for the first turn with the highest rolling player determining whether they want to take the first turn or not. And then, uh, Austin, like you said, there's there's some interesting victory conditions here. Yeah, so... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass over that for just a second and go to the special rules for Hammer of Io. So, like we've said, the whole point of this mission is to find the battleship that you think is floating out there, uh, get it to work, and bring it home. So players alternate placing five contact markers, uh, rolling off to determine who placed first marker. Uh, they can't be within 45 centimeters of another contact and must be at least 30 centimeters from a deployment zone or table edge. So they're going to be pretty evenly spaced kind of across the middle of the no-man's land of the table. Uh, and then, uh, and these are supposed to be, you know, kind of the weird sign- signatures that you're seeing on your aspects that may be the Hammer of Io. So, if a ship comes within 15 centimeters, or any attack craft comes within 5 centimeters of a contact marker, uh, you roll a d6, adding 1 for each contact marker that's already been revealed. Uh, on a 1 to 5... It's nothing, you know, it's an asteroid or a cloud of debris, uh, and the marker's just removed. 
On a six, though, they have found the Hammer of Io. And you place that model on the table facing a random direction, uh, and you can just get rid of the other uh, contact markers that you haven't touched yet. Uh, so historically, the Hammer of Io was an Emperor-class battleship, uh, but really any heresy legal battleship works for this. Uh, when it is revealed, remove D6 of its starting hull points to represent the crippling damage that it bears. Uh, the Hammer of Io is crewless, obviously, because it's been floating out in space for, oh, decades. what, 100 years? Something like that. Uh, 2,188, yeah, about 100 years, let's say. Uh, and so to represent this, the ship is always counted on being braced for impact orders and can't suffer a fire critical hit. Can't be on fire because obviously there's no atmosphere inside it to burn. Uh, it's always on brace for impact to represent that a lot of the damage that's inflicted on ships in Battlefleet Heresy isn't necessarily structural damage to the ship. It's, you know, plasma sweeping through eight decks and incinerating like 30,000 people. So if there's nobody to incinerate, you're fine. Uh, <laughs> so the battleship does start with port starboard dorsal and prow weapons damage and engine room damage. You can't; ha its shields can't be raised and its turrets can't be fired uh, unless it's been activated. Launch base can't be used at all, and you treat its turret and shield value as halved, rounded down. So what you do is you have to now get your repair tender to the Hammer of Io. Uh, ship must end its move in base-to-base -base contact with it. Uh, your repair tenders are just heavy transports, uh, except for Leadership 8, because presumably you've taken the best of your you know, available uh, repair ship to, to do this mission, because, hey, it's important and a little dangerous. Uh, and it has a speed of 20 centimeters, so it is a little faster than your kind of traditional heavy transport. Uh, so, what it does is it boards the Hammer of Io and attempts to restart systems. So, once it's done that, in the end phase, you roll 2d6. Uh, on a 2, you flip the wrong switch, and it suffer the Hammer of Io suffers another critical hit, which could be real bad, because it's anything but being on fire or bridge smashed, so... You could blow out a bulkhead. Oops. Uh, and then 3 to 8, you're just kind of keeping to working working on it. Uh, on a 9 to 10, you can fix a critical hit, activate the shields, activate the turrets, or start the engines, essentially. And on 11 to 12, you can do two of those things. So the whole point is to get in, turn it on, and leave. Uh, you get... If the Hammer of Io is destroyed, it's a draw. Everybody essentially loses. You didn't get what you came for. Uh, if you have the Hammer of Io and the enemy is completely disengaged or been destroyed, that's a minor victory. Uh, and then if you, you score a major victory, if you have control of the Hammer of Io, all critical damage has been repaired, all deactivated systems are now activated, which is real hard because that's what rolling a 9 to 12 every turn yeah, for like 9 points. turns or something like that. That's not really how you're going to win this. You're going to win it uh, if you are in control of the Hammer of Io when it's moved off the table. Uh, so yeah, it's a fun little mission. It's not you know, a usual, hey, go kill them all, because if you go at the enemy and kill them all, 
congratulations, the game ends because they've all been disengaged and destroyed, but you haven't found the Hammer of Io, so you haven't actually accomplished your mission. So it's a drop. you got to get out, because yeah. Lord knows they're, uh, they're relaying location information to larger elements of the fleet. Yep. And yep. Which means if you're not there, they're going to get there, and they're going to get the hammer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they will lay the hammer down, as the saying goes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Indeed. So, but, yeah, that's one of our fun little scenarios for this. And there are a bunch more. We'll probably talk about them, you know, at some point while we get on here, but... We're, we're working on something special with scenarios. Y'all, uh, y'all yeah. are really gonna like it. Yeah. Fanciness. Yeah. But um, I think that's pretty much it. For yep, that's that's all we got for this time. Blood Angels and the Iron Hands. Tune in next time, the same time, same place. We will talk about the um eleventh. What? Huh? Oh, we're not allowed to talk about them. Oh. Okay. We'll do something completely different. Um, yeah, I guess we can't talk about those guys. No. So. Not important. Didn't exist. Yeah. They're all Ultramarines now. I mean, what? <laughs> yes. Huh. Um, we are going to take a break from the Legions, and we'll talk about one of the other uh, illustrious fleets that are sailing the void. Yeah, we can talk Rogue Traders. We can talk uh, the Mechanicum. Armada Imperialis. We could talk about some Mechanicum. Uh, or something completely different. We could just talk about, you know, all the battles in the blue book, if you really want to do that, or some just pure fluff episode. If you guys have any thoughts on, you know, questions or things you want to know about a preference, shoot us a message and we'll definitely, uh, definitely do what you guys want to hear. Yeah. Cause we're easygoing like that. It's true. Also, we have nothing else to do. There's a global pandemic on time is an illusion. Yes, it is both irrelevant and also very real. Mm. So until next time, constant listeners, good hunting. Thanks for listening to another podcast from the Remembrancers Retreat. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving a rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. You can also find our swag store at teespring.com forward slash stores forward slash RR30K podcast. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at RR30K podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Remembrancers underscore retreat. You can also visit our website RR30K.com for podcast updates and the Battlefleet Heresy Compendium. You can also leave us a voicemail for us to play on a future podcast at 1929-437-3791. That's 1929-HERESY1. And you can also leave us an email at the Retreat at gmail.com. Thanks again.